0: Hello, and welcome to A Minder. This is Nyla speaking, and today I'll be taking you through papers that were published in December 2021 on various risk and protective factors related to Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, we're looking at observational and epidemiological studies here. We'll get started right after this quick introduction. Welcome to A Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. I've got a bit of a longer episode in store for you today. We've got 18 papers to go through. The first half is going to be on risk factors and epidemiological studies, including things such as socioeconomic status and stress. And then in the second half, we'll get into more health-related comorbidities and risk factors of Alzheimer's. Before I launch into the research, I just want to give you a reminder of what we do and don't do at a minder. So we are summarizing based on primarily the abstracts of these papers. These are peer-reviewed articles that appear on PubMed every month, but we don't really dig into the methodology or give any kind of critique of the paper. We leave that up to you. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the papers you hear in this episode, we have a bibliography that accompanies it. You can find that in the episode notes. So we'll start off easy with a paper on the prevalence and incidence of dementia, namely in Israel. This study comes from the Israel Center for Disease Control and Tel Aviv University. And paper one is entitled Prevalence and Incidence Rates of Dementia, a Nationwide Population-Based Study of Electronic Health Records in Israel. The first author is Letsky, the last author is Tsuka, and it was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The authors used data from medical health records from 2016 for all persons over the age of 45 and identified dementia cases based on either a recorded diagnosis, international classification of diseases, that's ICD-9 or 10, or the use of anti-dementia drugs. They identified nearly 66,000 dementia cases and determined the prevalence of dementia in 2016 to be 2.5% of people over the age of 45 and 6.4% for those over the age of 65. That's when the rates were based on the ICD codes and anti-dementia drug use, but they didn't differ much when they were just based on the ICD codes. The rates were higher in females compared to males, which is expected, but they were surprisingly lower in people with lower socioeconomic status. We'll talk more about the association between dementia and socioeconomic status in a couple papers from now. The next couple studies both take place in the U.S. and pertain to the differences in prevalence and incidence of dementia based on race and ethnicity. Let's start with a paper by first author Lim and last author Setiawan from the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the University of Southern California. Paper 2 is published in Alzheimer's and Dementia, and the title is Risk of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementia by Sex and Race-Ethnicity, the Multi-Ethnic Cohort Study. Using Medicare claims from nearly 106,000 people over a 15-year span, the authors determined the age-standardized diagnostic incidence rate and the relative risk of late-onset AD and related dementias, that is ADRD, based on sex and race-slash-ethnicity. Similar to the last paper, the incidence rate was higher in women, that is 17 per 1,000 person years, compared to 15.3 in men. The incidence rates for ADRD and Alzheimer's alone were highest among African Americans, followed by Native Hawaiians, and were fairly equal between Latinos and whites, and were lowest amongst Japanese Americans and Filipinos. You can check the paper for the exact numbers. It's important to note that taking education and cardiometabolic disease into consideration attenuated the differences seen by race and ethnicity, which were also decreased when accounting for deaths from competing causes. There was also less variation among APOE-E4 carriers, which have a higher genetic risk of developing Alzheimer's. Paper 3 focuses on the differences between non-Hispanic Black and White Americans, not only in prevalence rates, but also in how dementia manifests. Paper 3 is also published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by first author Lennon and last author Walker. This is from Adler University in Chicago and the National Institute on Aging in Baltimore. And the title is Black and White Individuals Differ in Dementia Prevalence, Risk Factors, and Symptomatic Presentation. The authors made use of National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center to evaluate dementia prevalence in 5,700 black participants and just over 31,000 white participants across 39 Alzheimer's research centers. Here, the authors report lower prevalence of dementia in black individuals, but note the difference with the previous paper, which was looking at age-standardized incidence rates. Specifically, 27% of their sample of black individuals had dementia, compared to 36% in the white participants. That said, the black participants with dementia presented with more symptoms, including greater cognitive impairment and neuropsychiatric symptom severity. The last two papers beg the question, what factors might underlie the racial and ethnic differences in dementia risk? Paper four might provide some answers. The title is Effects of Stress Exposure versus Appraisal on Episodic Memory Trajectories, Evidence for Risk and Resilience Among Black Older Adults. It was published in Gerontology Series B, Psychological Science and Social Science, by first author Morris and last author Zahodne, and this is primarily from the University of Michigan. Chronic stressors exacerbate memory impairment, and within the U.S., these are disproportionately experienced by Black older individuals. That could contribute to the higher rates of AD or more severe disease manifestation, as we saw in the last paper. In this study, the authors dig into whether chronic stress exposure influences racial disparities in memory by following nearly 17,000 older U.S. individuals in the Health and Retirement Study. The participants completed measures of chronic stress exposure, including health, financial, housing, relationships, and caregiving, and of stress appraisal, and also completed a word list memory task. Overall, black participants reported greater stress exposure than white participants, and this did partially account for some of the differences in memory performance. That said, in terms of stress appraisal, black older adults reported the aforementioned stressors to be less upsetting than white participants did. Interestingly, appraising stressors as being less upsetting was independently associated with better memory at baseline, which means that the differences in the initial memory scores were partially offset by the different stress appraisal between black and white participants. Overall, the study results suggest that reducing exposure to chronic stressors could reduce some of the racial disparities observed between non-Hispanic black and white Americans. We've got another study on socioeconomic stressors, but we're moving to the UK for this one. Paper 5 is coming at you from Newcastle University and is entitled Neurodegenerative Brain Changes Are Associated With Area Deprivation in the United Kingdom. Findings from the Brain for Dementia Research Study. And this was published in Acta Neuropathologica Communications by first author Hamilton and last author Thomas. Area deprivation is an evaluation of a neighborhood or region's socioeconomic conditions and is linked to healthcare outcomes likely due to inequalities in cognitive reserve, healthcare access, lifestyle, and other health factors. In this study, the authors set out to determine whether area deprivation within the UK is associated with greater risk for neurodegenerative diseases, specifically those leading to dementia. For each participant, the authors collected national area deprivation statistics based on the neighborhood in which they resided, and logistic models were used to assess how this influenced the presence and severity of dementia-related neuropathology. You'll have to check the paper for the study sample size, but the authors report that individuals amongst the 20% most deprived UK neighbourhoods did indeed show significantly higher pathology, namely in neurofibrillary tangles and neuritic plaque staging, as well as increased risk of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. You might be thinking that this could be due to comorbidities, but the authors found that this association was not explained by a greater risk of diabetes or hypertension, APOE genotype, alcohol misuse or tobacco smoking, sex, or age differences. This provides further evidence that socioeconomic disadvantage can contribute to dementia risk and to its underlying neuropathology. What else might be a source of stress and hence of dementia risk? Paper 6 brings us back to the U.S., specifically the University of Texas and Harvard Medical School, to investigate how adverse childhood experiences could affect cognitive decline later in life. Paper 6 was published in Aging and Mental Health by first author Baden and last author Oniaka, and the title is Association of Adverse Childhood Experiences with Subjective Cognitive Decline in Adulthood, Findings from a Population-Based Study. Here we're looking at subjective cognitive decline, which is self-reported cognitive decline as opposed to that determined by clinical assessments or cognitive tests. Subjective cognitive decline comes up often in my episodes, as it may be a useful way to catch AD or other dementias very early on. For this study, the authors obtained data from the 2019 Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey, totaling a sample of over 50,000 adults aged 45 to 79 years from 15 U.S. states. Just over 10% of the survey respondents reported experiencing subjective cognitive decline during the past year, and 14.5% reported four or more adverse childhood experiences. The authors report that there was a dose-response association between adverse childhood experiences and subjective cognitive decline, but you'll have to check the paper for details on what was counted as an adverse experience. The risk of subjective cognitive decline was almost three times higher in respondents who reported four or more adverse childhood experiences compared to those who had no adverse childhood experiences, suggesting that stress and trauma early in life could indeed affect cognitive function in adulthood. You've probably gathered from the last few papers that our social context affects our propensity for developing cognitive decline and dementia. In line with this theme, our next paper looks at the effects of social contact with first author Lee and last author Lee and a number of authors in between. Paper 7 is entitled Relationship Between Frailty and Cognitive Decline in Chinese Older Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, the Mediating Role of Social Contact. This is coming from the first affiliated hospital of Anhui Medical University in China and was published in Geriatric Nursing. If you were paying attention, you just heard the word frailty in the title, which hasn't come up yet in this episode. Frailty is a term for being prone to injury and illness and is a predictor for dementia risk. The authors wanted to know whether social contact mediates the association between frailty and dementia risk in their study sample of 205 participants in the Anhui province of China. The abstract doesn't get into detail regarding how frailty, cognitive decline, or social contact was measured, so please check the paper if you're interested. But onwards to the results, the authors found that while frailty was indeed positively associated with cognitive decline, both were significantly and negatively correlated with social contact. In other words, social contact did partially mediate the relationship between frailty and cognitive decline in this population, and speaks towards the need to combat isolation amongst the elderly, particularly in these difficult and isolated times. We're switching gears quite drastically for this next paper, which brings us into more lifestyle-related factors. Specifically, we're looking at vitamin intake for paper number eight, which is entitled Association Between Serum, Vitamins, and the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease in Chinese Population, So we are once again based in China at the Central South University with first author Liu and last author Shen, and this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Since vitamin deficiency has previously been associated with Alzheimer's risk, the authors wanted to investigate the relationship between Alzheimer's and various serum vitamin levels in a cohort of the Chinese population. They recruited 368 Alzheimer's patients and 574 healthy controls to their study and measured the levels of the following vitamins in the blood. That is vitamin A, B1, B6, B9, B12, C, D, and E. When compared to controls, AD patients had significantly lower levels of vitamin B2, B9, B12, D, and E. There was a relationship between low levels of vitamin B2, B9, and B12 and Alzheimer's risk, and this remained even after adjusting for age and sex, and lower vitamin E levels was related to impairment on the activity of daily living scale, so that includes things like getting dressed, feeding oneself, etc. There was, however, no significant association between serum vitamins and the age of onset of Alzheimer's, disease duration, mini-mental state exam scores, or the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Questionnaire scores. If you want to know more about how vitamins, or the lack thereof, might contribute to Alzheimer's pathology, there's a paper on vitamin D in this month's Bibliography for Mitochondria and Oxidative Stress and Metabolism. We've got one more diet-related study before we take a quick break. Paper 9 is entitled Association of Dietary Prebiotic Consumption with Reduced Risk of Alzheimer's Disease in a Multiethnic Population. It's by first author Nishikawa and last author Gu, based at Columbia University in the U.S., and it was published in Current Alzheimer's Research. As you just heard in the title, we're looking at prebiotics in this paper, not probiotics. These are foods that promote the growth of beneficial gut bacteria, and one of the most common prebiotics is fructin. This is a polymer of fructose and can be found in foods like wheat, barley, garlic, and onions, and it's also found in this paper. So this was a longitudinal study of just over 1,800 participants, aged 65 and older, who were dementia-free at baseline. The participants completed food frequency questionnaires, and the daily intake of fructin was calculated based on consumption frequency and fructin content per serving of eight food items. Among their study sample, and over their mean follow-up of 7.5 years, 391 participants were diagnosed with AD. The authors report that each additional gram of fructin intake was associated with a 24% decreased risk in AD, but they don't report in the abstract at what number of grams this potentially neuroprotective effect is capped. The association was not affected by smoking, alcohol consumption, comorbidities, race-ethnicity, sex, or ApoE genotype. That said, when the authors conducted a stratified analysis, they found that fractin intake was significantly associated with reduced AD risk in Hispanics, but not in non-Hispanic black or white participants. Regardless, it seems that fructan is an important component of the diet, at least for preventing Alzheimer's disease. That brings us to the halfway point of this episode. We'll take a quick break here. I want to take a short break to convince you to join me and the editing team here at Aminder. We are responsible for the high quality, polished episodes you hear, and our team is looking to grow so that we can cover even more episodes in a month. If you're interested in learning the ropes, send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. We do have other positions on our team, if you're interested in those. I find it to be a rewarding auditory and visual challenge, and I love working behind the scenes to get the best out of our hosts. So if you want to feel like a superhero after editing out mistakes seamlessly, please reach out to me and to the A-Minder team. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within ten years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. The second half of this episode is more specifically focused on physical ailments and comorbidities related to Alzheimer's, but to start us off we've got a paper on physical activity. There are quite a few observational studies that link exercise to decreased risk of dementia, but many of these rely on self-reports, and let's face it, people aren't always honest about the amount of physical activity they are or aren't getting. Paper 10 takes a different approach, as evident from the title, Dose Response Association Between Device-Measured Physical Activity and Incident Dementia, a Prospective Study from UK Biobank. This was published in BMC Medicine, and the first author is Peterman Rocha, or Roca, and the last authors, there are three equal contributing last authors, Pell, Ho, and Solis Morales. This is coming at you from the University of Glasgow in the UK and several universities in Chile. This was a prospective cohort study of nearly 85,000 participants whose physical activity was monitored by wrist accelerometers. These devices measured light, moderate, vigorous, and moderate to vigorous physical activity, as well as total physical activity and the duration. The authors determined incident dementia through hospital episode records and mortality through death registers. They looked at the association with physical activity using Cox proportional hazard models adjusting for sociodemographic, lifestyle, and health-related factors. In a median follow-up period of just over six years, mild to vigorous physical activity showed a significant trend with lower risk of overall dementia, especially at higher levels of physical activity. Performing more than 1,200 metabolic equivalent minutes of exercise per week was associated with the lowest risk. This is a common measure where the time in minutes depends on the type of physical activity you're engaging in. The individuals who achieved this level of weekly exercise had an 84% lower risk of incident dementia compared to those who got less than 300 metabolic minutes per week. Note that these findings are for the risk of both AD and vascular dementia. You'll have to check the paper for specifics on the subtypes. If you're interested in the association between physical activity and dementia, I encourage you to check out some of my prevention and intervention episodes where I cover mechanistic studies in animal models as well as research on exercise interventions in AD patients. On a related topic, there's considerable debate about whether and how body mass index, that is BMI, is related to dementia risk. If you've been following these episodes, you may have noted that this comes up fairly often and that the weight of the evidence points towards fluctuations in BMI being problematic. But let's see what paper 11 has to say on the matter, with first author Smith and last author Koyanagi. This is from Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, UK, and research centers in Barcelona, Spain. Paper 11 was published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and the title is Body Mass Index and Mild Cognitive Impairment Among Middle-Aged and Older Adults from Low- and Middle-Income Countries. The authors set out to know whether BMI status is associated with mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, in middle-aged and older adults, and MCI is a preclinical stage of dementia. They used cross-sectional data from the study on global aging and adult health, spanning six low- and middle-income countries. BMI, based on measured weight and height, was categorized into four groups, the underweight, which is under 18.5, normal between 18.5 and 24.9, overweight between 25 and 29.9, and obese, which is over 30. From their sample of over 32,700 individuals, they found that in the 50 to 64-year range, underweight, overweight, and obese individuals all had higher odds of having MCI compared to normal weight individuals. However, in individuals aged 65 and older, those who were under or overweight had significantly lower odds for MCI, and there was no significant association with obesity. So these results provide further nuance to the debate about body mass index and MCI or dementia risk, suggesting that the association may be moderated by age. We're moving on to a couple papers on a fairly well-established risk factor for AD, which is diabetes. These next two papers actually pertain to whether medication used to treat diabetes could be contributing to the increased risk of developing AD later in life. Paper 12 is called Association of Metformin Use with Alzheimer's Disease in Patients with Newly Diagnosed Type 2 Diabetes, a Population-Based Nested Case Control Study. There are two first authors, namely Ha and Choi, and the last author is Kim. This is from the Yonsei University College of Medicine in the Republic of Korea and the National Cancer Control Institute, also in Korea. The journal is Scientific Reports. Metformin is used to treat type 2 diabetes by reducing insulin resistance. In this study, the authors followed 70,500 newly diagnosed patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus to see whether treatment with metformin increased AD risk. There were around 1,700 cases of AD, which are matched to nearly 8,400 controls for age, sex, and diabetes onset and duration. Using multivariable regression analyses adjusted for comorbidities and cardiometabolic risk profile, the authors found that metformin use was indeed associated with an increased odds of AD. The adjusted odds ratio was 1.5. This was higher in patients who had diabetes for longer and for those who also had depression. Considering these results, the authors call for more research to determine the long-term safety of using metformin to treat diabetes. Next up, I have another paper on the same topic, and the results conflict with those from the previous paper. This is a special, rare occurrence in the podcast, though not in scientific research. So let's see what first author Seknik or Sechnik and last author Religa have to say on the topic. This is coming from Karolinska Institute and University Hospital in Sweden and the title is The Association of Anti-Diabetic Medications and Mini-Mental State Examination Scores in Patients with Diabetes and Dementia. Paper 13 was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. The authors looked at the association between five antidiabetic drugs and changes in cognitive function as measured by the Mini-Mental State Exam in Patients with Diabetes and Dementia. So note that the research question isn't quite the same as in the previous paper. Here, we're looking at cognitive decline in patients who have already been diagnosed with AD. This study included nearly 1,900 patients diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and AD or mixed pathology dementia. The authors looked at the association with the five following drugs, metformin, insulin, sulfonylurea, thiazolidinidiones, uh uh-oh. Okay, these get harder as I go. And dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, that is DPP4i. It's too early on a Sunday to be pronouncing these things. So the authors found that patients who prevalently used metformin or DPP4i had slower cognitive decline than non users. On the flip side, the use of insulin or sulfonylureas was associated with a greater decline in mini mental state exam scores at annual intervals, and that was compared to DPP4I users. So these results could suggest that metformin slows cognitive decline in patients with diabetes and AD, but clearly more research is needed. Next up, I have the latest from the Framingham Heart Study, a large ongoing US based research project on cardiovascular diseases. These are strongly associated with AD and vascular dementia risk, and if you'd like to know more about the underlying mechanisms, I recommend you check out our episodes on cerebrovascular contributions to Alzheimer's pathology. But for paper 14, we're zoning in on a potential biomarker for dementia with first author McGrath and last author Sashadri in their study entitled Plasma EFEMP1 is Associated with Brain Aging and Dementia, the Framingham Heart Study. This is coming at you primarily from the National University of Ireland-Galway, as well as universities in the U.S., and it was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. We're looking at EFEMP1 for the study, which stands for Epidermal Growth Factor Containing Fibulin Extracellular Matrix Protein 1, definitely using the abbreviation. EFEMP1 has previously been associated with increased white matter hyperintensities burden and with abnormal aging. So, the authors wanted to know whether EFEMP1 levels in the blood could predict neuropathology of AD or vascular dementia. They took plasma EFEMP1 levels from nearly 1,600 older dementia free adults in the Framingham offspring cohort and followed them for a median of almost 12 years to evaluate incident dementia and stroke occurrences, structural and MRI, brain measures, and cognitive function, MRI being magnetic resonance imaging. 131 of the participants developed dementia during this follow-up period, and participants in the highest quintile of EFEMP1 levels had increased risk of all-cause and AD dementia. The hazard ratios were around 1.8 for both. EFEMP1 levels were not associated with markers of vascular brain injury, that is, measures of white matter hyperintensity, covert brain infarcts, or stroke. There was more evidence for the association with AD. Higher levels of circulating EFEMP1 were related to an increased lower total brain and hippocampal volume. That was a little confusing the way I said it, but essentially it was associated with less total brain and hippocampal volume, as well as poorer performance on an abstract reasoning task. These findings suggest that EFEMP1 could play a biological role in the development of Alzheimer's and may eventually serve as a diagnostic biomarker. And if you're interested in biomarkers and other diagnostic tools, check out this month's bibliographies on those topics for the latest papers. Yet another established risk of Alzheimer's, among other neurodegenerative disorders, is traumatic brain injury, or TBI. This is a very active area of research with major implications for many high-level athletes and, of course, the average citizen as well. Let's learn more about the association between TBI and AD with Paper 15, coming from my home university, McGill. Paper 15 is by first author De Guise and last author Daguerre or Dagher, And the title is Risk Factors for Alzheimer's Disease Development After Traumatic Brain Injury, a Preliminary Study. It was published in Alzheimer's Disease and Associated Disorders. The authors hypothesized that the severity of TBI is associated with the development of AD, and that this relationship is further influenced by cardiovascular and metabolic comorbidities, like the ones we saw in the last few papers. To test this, they conducted a case-controlled retrospective study on around 5,600 patients with TBI who were admitted to a tertiary trauma center over a 12-year period. Using medical records and medical insurance data, they found significant associations between post-traumatic amnesia and chronic vascular lesions with the development of Alzheimer's dementia, and the authors therefore stressed the need for future research to optimize post-TBI care and reduce the risk of Alzheimer's in this vulnerable population. Three more papers to go. This next one is on chronic infectious diseases, which increase the risk of neurodegenerative conditions, potentially by causing a pro-inflammatory state in the body. Paper 16 looks at two of these diseases at once, namely hepatitis C virus and periodontal disease, which is an infection of the gums and bones surrounding the teeth. Paper 16 is published in Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Maloney and last author Zhao. The title is Periodontal Disease and Risk of Dementia in Medicare Patients with Hepatitis C Virus, and it's coming primarily from a medical research center and the Pennsylvania State University, both in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This study used Medicare claims data between 2014 and 2017 to study nearly 440,000 patients with hepatitis C virus in order to see whether additionally having periodontal disease increases the risk of Alzheimer's and related dementias. The authors conducted Cox multivariate regression analyses controlling for age, gender, race, income, and education, as well as other medical comorbidities. The incident rate of AD and related dementias was around 11% in patients with periodontal diseases compared to 9% for those without, and this difference was statistically significant. Having periodontal disease was also associated with earlier onset of Alzheimer's, and after adjusting for all covariates, the hazard of developing AD was 1.35 times higher in those with periodontal diseases. This isn't the first paper I've covered that suggests that gum infections are associated with Alzheimer's, so be sure to book your next dentist's appointment, or at least go brush your teeth. To round off our episode, we've got two papers on how undergoing surgical procedures could increase or decrease dementia risk. Paper 17 is on anesthesia, which came up in last month's episode as well. Here we're looking at neuraxial anesthesia, which is the use of local anesthetic around the central nervous system, for example, in the spine. Paper 17 is entitled, Risk of Dementia in Patients Who Underwent Surgery Under Neuraxial Anesthesia, a Nationwide Cohort Study. This is from first author Kwan, last author Kim at Hallam University in Korea, and it was published in the Journal of Personalized Medicine. This study used data from the Korean National Health Insurance Service to determine the risk of AD and other dementia among nearly 4,500 control participants and around 1,100 who had received neuraxial anesthesia. After a follow-up period of 9 years, the incident rates of dementia were 11.5 per 1,000 person years for the control group and 14.8 for the neuraxial anesthesia group. This translates to a 1.4-fold higher risk of dementia among those who had undergone surgery with neuraxial anesthesia, and this was even higher in a subgroup analysis for AD specifically. This adds to the literature that the long-term effects of anesthesia should be taken into consideration in medical decisions when possible. We'll end off our episode with a potentially protective factor for reducing dementia risk, namely the extraction of cataracts. I've seen previous papers suggesting that preserving hearing in older adults can prevent or slow cognitive decline, and the same might be true for vision. Paper 18 is called Association Between Cataract Extraction and Development of Dementia. It was published in the JAMA Internal Medicine by first author Lee and last author Larson at the University of Washington. This was a prospective longitudinal cohort study that used data from the Adult Changes in Thought study, which is an ongoing one that I've covered from time to time in my episodes. A total of 3,038 participants aged 65 and older were included, all of whom had a diagnosis of cataracts or glaucoma, and data was collected over a 24-year period. After taking into consideration a number of other dementia-related risk factors, which you can check out in the paper, the authors found that cataract extraction surgery significantly reduced the risk of all-cause and Alzheimer's dementia. Specifically, the hazard ratio was 0.7 for participants who had the surgery compared to those who did not. Glaucoma surgery did not change dementia risk. And with that, we are at the end of today's episode. I hope you found it useful and accessible, and I just want to say that this is also the end of our December Papers series, so we'll be taking a break for about a week before we launch into January Papers. In the meantime, you can check out some of our older episodes, you can peruse our bibliographies, share the podcast with a friend, or perhaps leave us a review on Google Play or Spotify. Before I close off, I would like to thank the whole Aminder team who is hard at work to provide you with this latest research update. In particular, I'd like to thank the sorting team, which has been led by Jacques, Sarah for reviewing my script and providing such positive feedback, Chihiro for editing the audio, and Anusha for reviewing that, and Laura for providing the bibliography today. If you would like to join our team, please reach out to us by email with your CV and a quick note of how you'd like to contribute. It's really been a valuable experience as a researcher to be working on this podcast, and as a science communicator. Our music is by Anusha Kamesh you can check her out at AK Music on YouTube or Anusha Kamesh on SoundCloud all right talk to you again soon